0: too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy30. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today.
2: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Well, listen, I am speaking from personal experience here when I say, look, you run a small business, your hours are not the traditional 9 to 5. If you can hear the exhaustion in my voice right now, I am recording this at 6.45 a.m. You tend to work around the clock when you've got your own business, so the hours of the post office are kind of meaningless. That is one of the reasons you should go to Stamps.com. You get postage on demand right from your desk whenever you need it, 24-7. With Stamps.com, you buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You get everything from stamps to shipping labels the instant you need it. Then you just hand it to your mailman. You don't need an expensive postage meter anymore. You'll never have to go to the post office again. Everyone talks about things being on demand these days. This podcast is on demand. Shouldn't your very postage situation be similarly finagled? And right now, you can use our promo code, R-I-S-K, for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial. You get a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on that little microphone on the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's stamps.com, enter R-I-S-K. I'm going to have another cup of coffee. Now here's the show. Extra Hello, kids. This is Extra Risk, where we give you just a little bit more of the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Ramona Falls behind me now. Well, I'll tell you, one of the greatest surprises and one of the profoundest joys of creating this show is the participation of you, the fans. It was your reactions early on in the form of emails or whatnot that convinced me that we were really on to something quite, well, more than entertainment here. Sometimes in conversation, I use the word infinite. I'll say, it's not just entertainment. Now, it's something infinite. And then shortly after the fans started writing in that the podcast was having such an effect on their lives... Fans started writing in that they wanted to jump in, participate, share their stories. And there are days when I feel, you know, so self-involved, so self-absorbed, so battered by my own worries. And then I'll have a Skype session with a fan of the show. And to be able to just listen, I just end up feeling like a human again and i'm damn grateful i think you will be grateful too that this beautiful lady named Moni sheerier reached out to me to share this story and we call it the third man
1: My husband and I had been trying to have a baby for three and a half years. David is my rock. We have one of those relationships where I am the crazy, artistic, romantic nut job. And he is the wear a suit every day and go to work and support the family and never cry and never get excited and never get upset. He's just okay. Everything's, that was a pretty good movie or no, it wasn't as good as I expected. And that's sort of his range where my range was like, that was the most amazing movie I've ever seen. Or, Oh my God, that sucked. I can't believe so-and-so said it was so great. I'm just dramatic. And he is never dramatic. And I, I never imagined that we would try for three and a half years. You can't imagine how ruined sex can become. It's just this utilitarian nightmare. And You can't imagine how many pregnancy tests you can take. I mean like literally hundreds. You can take five a day because you think any one of them might suddenly tell you that you're free of this. And then after the first year, you start adding the testing, and the testing is blood test after blood test, and appointment after appointment, and then there's invasive, horrible stuff like where they thread tiny tubes up through your cervix, and it hurts, and there's a male doctor down there poking around, and they're injecting dye up through your uterus and your ovaries, and then they're taking pictures of them, and every month the hormones make you more insane. So now you're like a lunatic that no one would want to have sex with anyway. Um... We finally got pregnant after 31 cycles and that's when my husband David really started to get excited. And when he saw the little baby clothes I had wrapped up to surprise him with, even though we had been going at it for so long, that's when it became real. And that's when he really wanted it. Um, so when we lost that baby, it was super devastating. There's no way to convey how hard it was. So that's how we arrived at adoption. Getting ready to adopt is almost like, it's its like buying a house 20 times in terms of paperwork and everything you have to do. You have to write your biographies and you need two sets of FBI fingerprinting and you need your DMV records and you need a million pictures and you need a, a beautifully laid out brochure about your family and you need, an, it's endless. So that was overwhelming, but once we got through that, we were chosen within the first few weeks. Our adoption worker called me up one day and she said, "I have a potential birth mother for you guys. Um, I'm calling you up instead of just sending her your info because there's some things to be concerned about, and I want to make sure you're cool with it before we present you to her." So I said, "What's the stuff?" you know?" And she said, "Well, she's a teenager and she's in juvenile hall, which means you might need to pay some of her juvenile hall expenses if you adopt her baby. But the main concern here is that there's three potential birth fathers. Um, That means there's three guys who could possibly try to stop the adoption or, or cause a problem. So we decided to go for it and we talked her on the phone and I knew she was going to choose us. I think she was down to two, two or three couples, but I knew she was going to choose us. So the counselor from our agency let us know that the birth mother had chosen us, and she wanted us to raise her baby. And I just burst into tears. I mean, I just started, I, I shocked myself with immediate sobbing, because I was so relieved. So we all flew up to meet her. We had a long, 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 like a four and a half hour meeting with her in juvenile hall with our counselor there. And the birth mother asked that I come back about a month later. She wanted to spend more time with me. So I I went up by myself and visited her for several hours for three days. And it was on the third day that I learned more about these three potential birth fathers. Potential birth father number one was her long term boyfriend who she had a child with already, um, who she believed to be the father of the baby. She explained that she hitchhiked to the next town down. She met another guy hitchhiking and they had sex one time, but she didn't think it was him because they had used protection and it was just that one time. Then she arrived in the new town. She almost immediately hooks up with birth father number three, who's this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Aryan Nation gang guy who just sounds horrible. She she tells me he's a bad guy. You 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 should hope that that's not the father because he's just bad. He's been in and out of prison. He's violent. He's a drug addict. He's a drug dealer. He's Member of this hate gang, it couldn't be much worse. And I'm kind of scared already because I'm thinking it sounds to me the timing is probably more for this guy than the first guy. So uh, she goes into early labor, so I'm back two or three weeks from when I left her, and we were there on the day that our son was born. So we walked into the room. I could see that the baby was there, but I made a great effort to walk right to her, to hug her, ask her how she was, to connect with her. And then by the time I went to meet the baby, David was already holding him. And you could just tell that he was smitten. The guy that never warms up quickly, you know, he warmed up immediately. I've never seen anything like it. And then I hold him and it's just hard to believe this is my son. The only way I know how to describe it is, is if like 10 minutes into me holding the baby, a nurse had come in with a different baby and said, oh, no, no, I'm I'm sorry, that's the wrong baby. This is your baby. I kind of would have been able to just be, oh, okay, this baby. Like I said, my husband fell in love right away. He was just like a proud first dad, you know, like even when Bodie went through that horrible, ugly newborn pizza face, you know, acne everywhere phase, he still was proud as a peacock, like here's my son. And I remember feeling like there was something wrong with me because I just didn't really want to show him off. He looked weird. And I just wasn't, wasn't 100% yet for me when he was really little. I remember talking to one of my friends about these feelings and what a bad mom i was feeling like and she said well you're just really scared i think and i said you mean scared that i'll never i'll never really love him like i should and she said no i think you're scared that you might lose him and i realized that i was scared of that <laughs> like i was really scared of that even though my lawyer had told me not to worry <laughs> Just thinking that there was any chance that he could be taken away was just so scary. And I remember that night, uh, my husband had gone away on a business trip for the first time. You know, Bodhi was probably six or eight weeks. I remember looking at him in his little bassinet and he was so small. And I just looking at him and it finally went from 90 to 100. I finally just loved him I I I finally felt like his mother a hundred percent and I remember telling him I love you you know I love you little boy I'm gonna be your mommy it was like I think it's similar to when you give birth that feeling it was like I was really giving birth to this feeling and it was complete and I, I just loved him you know I just loved him. Every moment since then has been a love fest with me and him. There's never been even a second of anything other than this is my son and I love him. And I will decapitate you if you try to take him away, you know. Before the baby was due, our lawyer sent out paperwork to both known birth fathers where they could deny paternity or admit paternity but allow the adoption or do something to try to stop the adoption. And after Bodhi was born, birth father number one signed the papers right away. So we didn't have to worry about him. Birth father number two, anonymous drifter, we don't have to worry about him. Birth father three was the one we're now worried about and was the one that we felt pretty sure at this point was the father because Bodie was born with blonde hair and blue eyes, and he was the only blonde-haired, blue-eyed one, and he was the bad one. During that time, we were still waiting for Frank to sign the paperwork. Or to not sign it. If he doesn't sign it within 30 days, they get to just petition the court and terminate his rights at that point. So it's like a 30-day waiting game. You have your baby and you just have to wait out those 30 days. And when I talked to our lawyer about it, he said, don't worry, you know, like, it's not a big deal. Only about one in a hundred birth fathers will sign it and try to fight the adoption. So just relax. So during our 30-day wait, Frank called our adoption agency a couple times and the adoption caseworker called me to tell me about it and she said, "Listen this guy he, he sounds just like he's drunk or high. he sounds really messed up on the phone and he really makes me uncomfortable when he calls. But when I talked to my lawyer about that happening he said, "Don't worry." he's just posturing that's normal you know a lot of birth fathers just feel the need to kind of puff up and say oh i'm gonna man up i'm gonna take care of my son you can't have him and but they never actually do anything about it they're not actually going to petition the courts. so try not to worry just enjoy your baby 30 days is gonna be here before you know it and on the 30th day frank actually called the courthouse and even though that wasn't filing paperwork of any kind, he didn't sign anything, he didn't file anything, it was somehow enough to allow his due process. And our lawyer told me, you shouldn't really be worried about this at this point there is no way that a judge is going to give this man a baby. But we do have to just go through the motions. He can't just deny him. He has to go through the motions that will stand up in court. So we have to go through this process. Um, It'll start with a hearing where we schedule a second hearing. It'll kind of go like that for a few hearings. And if things keep going, eventually there may be a trial. And at that point, you know, you have to decide whether you want to keep going with this. And I'm like, what do you mean, keep going? Well, whether you want to keep fighting this. And I realize he's telling me, we might decide this isn't worth it. And we're just not going to keep our baby, you know, like that is not happening at this point. But he lets me know a trial could be tens of thousands of dollars. And we've already spent tens of thousands of dollars on infertility and adoption. We don't have any more tens of thousands of dollars left. So, this trial thing is really frightening. But the lawyer, I remember the lawyer actually telling me, don't worry, an actor playing a lawyer could win your case. So you might be in for some hassle, you might be in for some loss of money, but you're not going to lose your baby. So just, you know, I don't want you to worry about that, which actually comforted me a lot. So when Bodhi was two and a half months old, right before we flew down to LA for our first hearing, my lawyer called me up and he told me, listen, don't freak out because only about one in a hundred birth fathers actually show up. It's so rare. I know one in a hundred fight and he fought, but still again, it's like one in a hundred of those guys that fight will show up. This is all I work with and they never show up. So, you know, chin up. I look forward to meeting you guys in person tomorrow. This is, this is going to be great. That day when I arrived at the courthouse, when we were parking and walking, I remember thinking that I really, really wish that he would just die. It's so unlike me to think that, anything like that. And it stopped me in my tracks and I had to think, is that really true? Do I, do I really feel that way? And I thought... Yeah. I had never wished for someone to die before, but I really did wish that Frank would die because he was trying to take my baby from me. Um, so not proud of that feeling. I had Bodhi wrapped up and snuggled and I felt that he was protected from the icky stuff at the courthouse. And I looked all around for him. And he wasn't there. He wasn't there. And, oh, my gosh, I just, like, all this tension I had, you know, just started to release. And I realized how wound up I had been. So uh, I go to try to grab seats. I want to grab seats right in front of the courthouse doors because I want to be right there when our lawyer comes out I knew he was in court right before us so I went to sit you know right there directly across and David was like very kind of softly he was like sweetie let's uh, let's go sit over here and he's pointing to some totally further away place and I and I'm like why why well let's sit here he'll see us right away we'll see him right away like there's chairs here let's sit here and he says well I really think we should sit over here and he, we actually go back and forth with this a little bit. It was totally annoying to me. Why can't we just sit here? You know, what's, what's your problem? Like, I'm starting to get agitated. And he very gently puts his hand on my arm and he just whispers my ear. And he said, sweetie, um, he's here. Frank, Frank is here. And I look over and like, there he was right there. And I can't imagine how I didn't see him. I just look for a second because I'm so freaked out that he can see me and he knows that I can see him and I turn away and, but it's like he's blazed into me already, you know? He's got these tattoos up and down his arms and he's actually got tattoos of horns on his head, like near his temples. I can see them because his hair is cropped close like a devil. And I am freaking out. You know, my heart is pounding and adrenaline is just like flooding me and I suddenly feel sick. And I I actually remember feeling so tender towards David in that moment because he had been so calm and he had been so kind and so gentle with me when I was really getting quite bitchy and insistent about where, where I wanted to sit, you know. And I immediately leaned on him to be my protector to be the one that buffers me from these hard and scary things and he stepped right up to that role and I almost feel him stand taller and he put his arm around me and escorted me to the way way other corner of this big long room and I remember like I was almost literally burrowed into this corner holding on to the baby and trying not to look You know, sometimes I looked and sometimes he would be there peering over this partition that was kind of dividing us and it was like boring into me, you know, with these really wide intent eyes and he had this pinched hard little mouth and he just looked so intense and it would just flood me again with these feelings of dread. Felt like we were there forever, but I'm sure it was probably only 10 or 15 minutes and courthouse doors open and and our lawyer came out. And he says, yeah, I can't believe that Frank showed up. I mean, that almost never happens. And I'm thinking, yeah, they almost never fight. They almost never show up. Like this isn't going well. And he tells me, well, one thing I want you to know is that, you know, Frank, Frank has his own lawyer that's been appointed to him. And one of the things this guy has to do and just because he has to do his job is he's going to ask for visitation. Of course, I hear the word visitation. I just immediately flip out. But he stops me right away. He says, he has to ask for that. But it's ridiculous. It's never going to happen. You know, the judge is never going to grant visitation. We don't even know if this guy is the father. There's no DNA test. It's not going to happen. He's going to ask for it. It's going to be denied. You know, I just tell you now because I don't want you to freak out in court. So we go in. And I just, I remember that my biggest focus was positioning myself just So, so that David would block my view of Frank and I didn't look at him through the whole court proceeding. And when it came time for his lawyer to ask for visitation, you know, just like my lawyer said, the judge said, paternity hasn't even been established. I think we're a little premature asking for visitation at this point. And I thought that was going to be that, like my lawyer said, that that's the end. But instead, Frank's lawyer started making like a passionate plea for visitation. And he said, you know, my clients come all the way down here. He traveled on a bus overnight. He's been in the courtroom since 7.30 a.m. This couple also does not live here. They took a plane here. Given the extraordinary circumstances that these people are so rarely in the same location at the same time, do you think we can make an exception? We could meet after court. We could go to some child-friendly location for a couple hours. And and this is when I really start to freak out because there is no way I can spend two hours with this guy, Frank. And I'm starting to really panic about it. And the judge and the lawyer actually go back and forth a few times, like negotiating. And finally, what the judge says, tell you what, what I'm going to give you is 10 minutes. You're going to stay right here in the courthouse. You can meet in the little room adjoining this one, all lawyers present, 10 minutes that's it. And um, I just started to feel that tears started to just pour out of my eye, silent. I mean, it wasn't even moving, but tears were just pouring one after the other. I was just so horrified and scared. I was so scared of this man who, who who's like a killer, probably. Who's Everything I know about him is so horrible. I remember then... Some details that Bodie's birth mother's mom had told me. She filed charges against Frank for statutory rape since he was 30. And Bodie's birth mom was 17. And he had actually been the one who was giving her heroin and trying to keep her sedated and keep her against her will, according to the mom. She had tried to collect her and he hadn't let her go. So she filed these charges when she found out that he was fighting the adoption And what I remembered about this specifically in that moment was that he had called her and left a message on her voicemail and he had said, how dare you fuck with me? I'm going to burn your fucking house down, bitch. And I was so scared because I was imagining him saying something like that to me when we meet, you know, something like, how dare you take my son from me? The thing that I really couldn't stop thinking was that I didn't want him to touch the baby. That was like the one thing I could never allow for him to touch my baby. And as soon as we were let out of the court, I immediately grabbed my lawyer and I said, I don't want him to touch the baby. Can he touch the baby? And my lawyer said, don't worry, he can't touch the baby. That's up to you. He doesn't have to touch the baby. It's gonna be the longest 10 minutes of your life but it's just 10 minutes and then we're out of here. And I said, well, I don't know what to say to him. And he said, you, you have to be nice. You have to be cordial. I said, I don't know how to be nice to this man who's trying to take my son from me. What can I say? I mean, I don't even know what to say when we meet. How can you say pleased to meet you? I couldn't be less pleased to meet him. And David said, what about if we say, I'm sorry, we have to meet under these circumstances? And I thought, okay, that's something I can say, and that's honest, and I can try to be nice. So, we go into the room, and I'm just shaking, and I'm crying, and the sick feeling is so overwhelming. I actually was fearful that I would vomit, and he walked in. I started to kind of raise my head to look at him because I knew I would have to. And I'm bracing myself for this violent outburst that I had been imagining from him. But what he says is, thank you for taking care of my son. And the kindness that was in his voice, the genuine gratitude, was so shocking. It just made me look at him. And as soon as I looked at him, it was like everything was changing in a confusing way. I mean, I just expected so much anger and then here was this kindness and then what I could really see right away was that this man was hurting. This man was on the verge of tears. This man was for real. He wasn't just here to get a baby and collect money from the state. You know, when you're on welfare, you get more money for a baby. That was one of the ideas that we had had about why he was doing this. And I could see that wasn't true. This man, whatever he was doing here, it was sincere. And that was such a surprising moment. And then, like, the whole universe kind of shifted when I saw that in him. And he sat down, and he, he just started talking to us. And he said... You know, I want you to know that I'm clean and sober now and that I'm trying to become a drug counselor. You know, I'm really trying to turn my life around and I really want to help people. i mean, like, what? You know, like, I can't believe he's saying this. And I start just immediately having this weird internal dialogue where I'm thinking like, wow, like, what would that mean? For him, what would that mean to us? What would that mean for our son? You know, and I, I start taking him in, in in a new way. You know, I start taking in his tattoos and I start thinking, you know, if he really got it together and became a drug counselor, he could save people. You know, this is like the weird trip I'm going down in my head. Like he could save like people that other people couldn't reach, people that were so scary, he wouldn't be scared of them, and they would relate to him, and he could help them. And I find myself hoping for that because I'm thinking, if this is my son's father, like, wouldn't I want there to be something redeeming? Wouldn't I want him to not be a monster? I mean, one of the hardest things in thinking about all of this before we got down there was thinking, what am I going to tell my son when he says, who's my birth father? Like, What, what can you say? And now I'm thinking that maybe this is someone that my son could meet. Maybe he could even learn from him. Maybe this guy could help him, you know, understand that he's got this addictive nature or help steer him away from, I don't know, you know, I'm just, I'm really going out there. And <sighs> it was just really mind-blowing. And, and he finishes talking about his drug counseling thing. And he asks us, you know, what do you do? And. I'm trying to paint this picture of our life, how wonderful it is, how much we love the baby, how many people love him. And, and I find myself just telling him the smallest bit about how we tried to have a baby for years and how we actually got pregnant and we had a miscarriage. And, and when I say that, he interrupts and he says, well, that must have been so hard. And I just look at him and I said, yeah, you know, it really was. And he says, you know, I'm really sorry that this is happening to you. I don't want to take anything from you. And I know that he means that. I know that he means that. And there's so much tenderness in him. And, and I just can't explain. Like, I wanted him dead a few hours ago, and now I can see what could make someone love him he tries to explain where he's coming from he actually stands up and you can tell he's about to cry he's really fighting to hold it together and he says you just have to understand he says where I'm from and he puffs his chest and he pounds it he says where I'm from I just always promise myself I would never abandon a son if I ever had a son I would never abandon him I would man up and take responsibility. And that's why I'm here. And you know, in that moment, other things I knew about him really started to flood through me. And what I remember is I had heard that he was raised in foster care. And I had heard that his dad left him and he was removed from his mother at a young age because of neglect and sexual abuse. And all of a sudden I just <laughs> All of a sudden I just felt heartbroken for him, you know, I just thought, he was just like my son. I mean, they were born in the same place into the same kind of circumstances, but no one was there for him. No one stepped up and and wanted him and took care of him and fought for him. And I just thought, what better could I have done in those circumstances? I remember my mom always raised me to believe that you can't judge other people. It was one of the biggest things she always tried to tell me is that you can't judge other people because you have no idea what they're going through or what they've been through. You just don't know. And so you can't judge. And I always felt like that was so true. And I realized in that moment that I had forgotten myself with him because he was trying to take something from me that was so precious, I had forgotten to try to not judge him. In that moment, I didn't judge him anymore. And it was like the room was filled with something magical. And I don't know if you wanna think of it like God, the divine like love, beauty, kindness, acceptance, But whatever it was, it was there and it was so palpable and it was transforming me like right before my eyes. And I was able to feel love for this guy. And I'm experiencing this and at the same time I'm watching myself experience it and it's like blowing my mind. (laughs) So now he finishes telling me about why he's doing this. And at that point he's looking at me. And I'm looking at him, and it was the most intense eye contact that I've ever experienced. It was like from that moment on in that room, there was barely a moment where he and I weren't locked. And it was like, have you ever been with someone and you're just looking at them and you're just having this experience together. It's, it's almost like, you know, climaxing with someone when you're really looking at each other and you just feel like you could crawl up and be in them and they could be in you and there's just no barrier. And it was like that. It wasn't sexual, of course, but it was like that. It was like there wasn't a barrier anymore. And at that point, he asked me, do you, do you think I can hold him? And he said it so softly and so tenderly and like with so much deference, like he really didn't expect that he could. And I was so surprised just to find myself saying yes, but I was thinking you have to, of course, you have to hold him. I was thinking he could get it together, but it's so much more likely that he won't. That he'll end up in jail forever, that he'll end up dead, that he'll end up just disappeared into the ethers. And this might be the only chance he has to hold something so beautiful. And maybe he can hold on to that. And I wanted to give that to him. And so I unwrapped the baby and... I lifted him out of his little sling and I reached over. And when I reached over to hand the baby to him, I just started sobbing because the act of handing him over to this man who was fighting me for him was just so symbolic of what I was so afraid of. And he held him so tenderly. And it was like he just, his face softened and he smiled and it was like he was mesmerized and he, he was in love with him. He was just looking at him. And he started saying, Oh, you know, he's got my, my brother's eyes. And, you know, he's got the Germanic chin of my father's side of the family. And, you know, he was commenting on all these little details about him. And, I thought, you know, he does, he looks so much like him. I mean, he's got this little round head and this pointy little chin and these blue eyes and this blonde hair. And I thought this is his father. Like I would bet my life, there's just no way. So the baby started to fuss a little bit. My first instinct was of course to take the baby back right away and comfort him, but I didn't. I reminded myself that this might be his only chance and instead of taking him back, I said, you know, if you put him over your shoulder and you kind of rock back and forth a little bit and pat him a little bit, he, he really likes that. So he did that and the baby calmed down right away. And I thought, how nice. He'll know that he could comfort his son, that his son was comforted by him. And right when that was happening, the lawyer starts saying, you know, we have to go. It's been way more than 10 minutes and we, we really need to leave. And I felt Like, no, I don't want to go yet, I need more time. But everyone, the lawyers are already starting to stand up and I know I can't. And he stood up and he handed the baby to my husband. He gave us his phone number and he didn't even ask for ours. And he said, thank you so much for letting me hold him. And my husband shook his hand and he turned to me and he extended his hand and I just stepped into him and I just put my arms around him and we embraced and we embraced, I don't know for how long, it was many seconds. I felt like once I let him go, maybe the, like, the goodness would go away too. Like maybe it was only magical when we were together. And we let go he walked away (laughs) it was like what just happened and we just when we finally started talking about it we agreed that we were just both so glad it had happened that we were so glad that we had met him and that we were so happy that we could tell this story to Bodhi about how his father came and fought for just a chance to see him and meet him and that was a beautiful feeling really and I was thinking you know maybe we can develop a relationship with this guy maybe when we get home like we can talk and get to know each other maybe he'll really get it together you know I was just filled with hope I felt good and I texted him when we got to the airport and I thanked him for coming and I told him, I'm so glad that that we got to meet you and I feel so much better about you than I expected and I I really hope we can get to know each other a little bit and maybe we can talk when we're all home. And he called me back like right away after that text, but we were about to get on the plane so I hate to text him and say, you know, I'm just getting on a plane, let's talk when we get home. When we got home, I called him up. He didn't answer, I left a message. I didn't hear back from him. A Couple weeks later, I heard that he was back in prison for drug possession. And I felt sad about that, even though I knew it made our case easier. You know, I was like really rooting for this guy now, you know, I felt connected to him. I wrote him a really long letter and really opened up about what I had experienced in that room with him and how much of a connection I had felt. I just put it all out there and I explained open adoption to him, you know, how supporting Bodhi's adoption wouldn't mean he never knew what became of him. We could share pictures, we could share letters, we could get to know each other. We could even maybe have visits down the road. Even if he doesn't support the adoption, I'm always going to tell Bodhi, positive things about him and the beautiful story of when they met it was like two days after that that my lawyer called and he said you know I have some news you might want to sit down and I just thought oh my god like what what's what what's gone wrong you know what's happened and he said you know this almost never happens and before he could even finish the sentence I'm thinking it almost never happens that they fight it almost never happens that they show up it certainly never happens that you like have a love moment together I mean what is going to happen now I just couldn't imagine and I I felt scared and I, I said what is it what and he said Frank's not the father I I don't even know how to express how shocking this was to me It took me a while to process this because this was great news. You know, we could go forward with the adoption, but at the same time, it was just sad. I guess our son's dad was a hitchhiker, a drifter. Like, we're never gonna know. And we don't have this beautiful story anymore. But David says, we still have it. We can still tell him that was still something beautiful that happened, even if it wasn't his biological dad. The next day, We were out of cell reach for about an hour, and when I came back into it, I had a voicemail, and it was from Frank. And he said, hi, Moni, it's Frank. Um, I'm out of jail now, that was just a mix-up. I'm out now, and uh, I was calling to see how my son's doing. And I realized that no one had told him yet. He didn't know that Bodhi wasn't his son. I felt so sad for him, because I knew that it was gonna devastate him. I tried to call him several times because I wanted to be the one to tell him because I wanted him to know that I was sorry and that I still felt that connection to him, but I could never talk to him again. He he didn't answer his phone and a few days later, his phone was disconnected. I don't know what became of him. I wanted to tell him that because of my experience with him, that my, my commitment to try not to judge others and to be aware that everyone is fighting their own deep battle has just gotten so much stronger. And, and that for that, I'm, I'm truly grateful. And that the world, I mean, everyone I meet was gonna benefit from me being more kind because of him. So, Frank, I haven't been able to find you, but if you're out there and somehow you hear this, this is for you. I hope to find you one day and that I can tell you how much you've affected my life and that I, I love you for it and that I really hope you're doing well. Thank you.
2: That is all for this week, my friends. This is Don Gibson behind me now with a song called "In the Beginning." His name is spelled D A U G H N. He's a truck driver from the uh, Cumberland Valley in Pennsylvania. Listen, if you would like to do what Monty Shearer did—that uh, is, to pitch us your story—go to the submissions page at Risk. Dash show.com. Let us know what you'd like to talk about. We will be in Philadelphia on November 16th at the First Person Arts Festival with Janine Garofalo. Uh, we will be back in New York on November 29th with Benari Poulton, and in Los Angeles on November 30th, with Eric Andre You can find out more about our live shows At risk-show.com tour If you'd like to learn a thing or two About this storytelling stuff Please visit our school At thestorystudio.org We have two-day workshops One-day workshops One-on-one sessions over Skype uh, Nine-week workshops They are wonderful You will love it And we've been doing more and more business workshops for (laughs) very happy staffs of very cool businesses. We need your support to keep Risk running. We need you to go to iTunes and leave a comment. We need you to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Risk Show. We need you to Check out our network at MaximumFun.org. You can become a member there, and that's the ultimate way you can support us. For the next, I think, couple of weeks, we're going to be celebrating Halloween. We're going to have a couple of Halloween episodes, I do believe. So be sure and check back with us next week. In the meantime, folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
1: okay that's the fucking end oh my god shit